3: Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. As we watch widespread and very bold protests in China, the first of their kind, the Biden administration is tepid and sheepish with its response. Congressman Mike Gallagher. This White House sort of constantly fears offending China. China, meanwhile, is pursuing a very clear objective.
4: Chinese strategy to basically take control of the world. Ultimately, first, Taiwan.
3: And then the rest of the world. The Senate passes the Respect for Marriage Act. Senator Mike Lee.
5: The bill's sponsors are claiming that they've got language that they've recently added to the bill that takes care of the problem. Only problem is this, it doesn't.
3: And Senator Tom Cotton joins us with a look at the runoff of the Senate seat in Georgia. There's a lot of
5: things that
6: we can do in a 50-50 Senate to slow down, in some cases stop, uh, the most extreme element
3: of the Biden agenda. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And please follow me on Twitter, the new liberated Twitter, at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at the new liberated Twitter, at Town Hall Review. We'll start with China. I hope you've been tracking the extraordinary events unfolding across the nation of 1.4 billion. President Xi, also the General Secretary of the Communist Party, has leveled harsh, draconian, zero-COVID policies that have potentially left COVID-positive apartment dwellers, or even those that might be COVID-positive, locked in their homes, even as fire broke out. (laughs) News reports indicated 10 people lost their lives. The story ignited a greater fire of frustration across the nation as... It's difficult to quantify, given the Orwellian nature of information control in the People's Republic of China. Tens of thousands have taken to the street, maybe more. The news highlights both the threat posed by and the vulnerability of our global adversary. And it's one more reason we need a China Select Committee in the next Congress. I turn to Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher. People who are going to join that committee are all going to be Mandarin speaking, super intelligent people. And I know you'll if you're on it, you'll help add to that step. I would like to come and talk to them at the beginning, to the staff about how to message into the media what they're doing. And I hope
7: you will put a schedule of hearings out. Completely agree with you on the importance of getting the messaging aspect right. I think a lot of what this select committee on China can do, in addition to making sure that good China-related legislation doesn't fall through the committee cracks where there's shared jurisdiction, is just kind of explain to the American people why this matters. Connect the dots between you know Taiwan, the first island chain, and everyday lives for Americans, and, and what it is we're up against. To tell a compelling story to the American people about why they should care about the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, that's something absolutely essential. It's going to require a very creative sort of media mind. And so I will take you up on that offer if I have any say in the committee going forward. Yeah, to me, the objective of the committee ought to be laid down at the beginning, which is to
3: educate and inform the American people the threat posed to their future and their children and grandchildren future by the Chinese Communist Party. End of mission statement. To inform them. You might legislate, you might recommend legislation, but it's to inform them. I want to play for you a clip of John Kirby at the White House, uh, Congressman Gallagher. And he's a good guy. I think Admiral Kirby does his best, but he got asked about the demonstrations in China.
4: We don't have uh, a preview of some sort of statement to read out to you today. We've been very clear about our concerns over... Uh, over uh, the the military's domination there uh, and their practice and their policies, uh, particularly the way they treat political prisoners, but I don't have a a statement for you today about that particular issue.
8: On on China, Um, is it the U.S.'s assessment that these protests we've seen are widespread or are they perhaps more isolated incidents that are being amplified by social media?
4: I don't think that we know a whole lot more of about the geographic location, size, scale and scope of them than what you're learning as well through social media and through traditional media. Um, it's not like we have, I think, um, a, a finer sense of insight than than
7: what's already out there in the public sphere. All right,
3: right? So Congressman Gallagher, John Kirby's a good guy. The admiral does his best. He doesn't know how many demonstrations there are. Nobody knows. I see things on Twitter the China committee ought to be out as the one-stop shopping center, for we are aware of 44 different demonstrations involving more than 100 people in the arrest. They ought to know that the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, abrogated their deal with the Roman Catholic Church, appointed a bishop. I mean, they ought to just be the clearinghouse. Is that the mission?
7: That, that is the mission, Hugh, uh, to really coordinate China policy and messaging Uh, across committees. And you you said something critical uh, when you explained your draft version of the mission statement. You said the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. I think part of our messaging, taking a a, a page from Reagan's masterful ideological warfare playbook has to be to constantly differentiate between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. And we stand with the Chinese people against the party. And right now we're seeing what the party does to oppress its own people because they fear their own people more than anything else. And so I was disappointed in in sort of the tepid messaging coming out of the White House yesterday. I think the president should explicitly support the brave Chinese protesters. They're showing tremendous courage. It's time for us to show some courage of our own. We need to make clear that CCP officials that are found to be responsible for any violent suppression of protesters will be subject to global Magnitsky sanctions. We should have already sanctioned um, the network of Chinese scientists and party officials who are responsible in the COVID cover-up. the Chinese Academy of Science, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We haven't done that because this White House sort of constantly fears offending China and is still uh, subject to the delusion that we can work with China on climate change. So there's a lot of ways in which the Select Committee on China can really hold this administration's feet to the fire. Uh, expose some contradictions in our national security strategy and ultimately uh, build a bipartisan, strong foundation for U.S. foreign policy that will last in the next few decades. Bill Gertz is the national
3: security correspondent for The Washington Times. He's been tracking very closely with the fast emerging military threat from China. In 2019, he authored Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. He talked about the latest developments with Charlie Kirk. What are the big takeaways from the Chinese Communist Party's
2: infiltration and aggressive posture towards the West?
4: Yeah, the uh, the main element of the new uh, story is that China will have 1,500 warheads in 2035. This is part of the nuclear expansion that has been described as breathtaking by the commander of the U.S. Strategic Command. Uh, By contrast, in 2020, they had about uh, 200 warheads, and they have doubled that number within one year, and they now have 400 warheads, and they're deploying large numbers of multiple warhead DF-41 ICBMs, and this is all part of a Chinese strategy to basically take control of the world, ultimately, first Taiwan, and then the rest of the world
2: how does the chinese communist party's international ambitions how how is that put in jeopardy or actually maybe even going to be focused on more because of what we're currently seeing in mainland china
4: yeah this is uh, what we're seeing is the 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 chinese have adopted something that is led by uh chinese dictator xi jinping called zero covid this is the it, it is not based on science it's based on the Communist Party saying we're in power, we're so strong that we're going to end this virus. And it's been an utter failure. And the the positive thing is it's triggered calls for freedom and democracy in China and for getting rid of Chinese Communist Party rule. Uh, but they are in big trouble. Uh, the Chinese are cracking down. They're using their mass surveillance system they're stopping people on the street and looking at their phones. If they have Twitter or Instagram or Telegram or any of these apps, uh, they're eliminating them and people are beginning to be arrested.
2: What is the Belt and Road Initiative?
4: Yeah, this is a, uh, uh, ostensibly a developing world infrastructure program, but it's really a stalking horse uh, for expanding Chinese communism. Uh, Chinese communism for years uh, had a uh, strategy uh, put forth by Deng Xiaoping, one of the earlier leaders, called uh, hide our time, hide our capabilities. They've dropped all pretense of that earlier uh, cautious approach. And now they're on the march and uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, they go into developing countries and they tell these countries, we'd like to build a railroad for you. We'll even finance it for you. And then they uh, impose uh, extravagant terms on the loans. And when the countries can't repay it, they say, well, this, this railroad's now ours. And they're literally taking over countries by doing that. And the strategy is to start in the developing world and work their way and try to encircle and control all the countries around the United States. Uh, the United States is viewed as the main enemy by the Chinese Communist Party, and they're working aggressively to undermine and ultimately destroy the country. They're literally uh, using their style of corruption. They're literally buying off politicians in these countries with large amounts yes. of cash. And basically that's, that's how they plan to take over these countries and and Africa and South America are two key areas where they're very aggressively promoting uh, the Chinese view. Even despite the fact that most of the world recognizes that uh, the COVID pandemic came from China and was most likely from uh, dangerous experiments that were taking place at a Chinese lab in Wuhan.
2: Bill, do you think that China and the Chinese Communist Party, do you think they're taking on too many projects at once? Do you think that they actually might be more likely for a tumble, a fall or a collapse? than they might actually lead us to believe? Do you think they're overstretched?
4: Really, it's a good question. I think that they are in charge. The Communist Party is tightly in control. Uh, Xi Jinping, since coming to power in 2012, uh, instituted a massive purge of anyone perceived as a threat to his rule. He now has more power than Mao Zedong. Uh, He has imposed a mass surveillance system like the world has never seen. The Biden administration, including the president himself, Jake Sullivan, and the secretary of state, have said that they're not going to oppose the Chinese communist system. This is a break from the Trump administration, which made clear that the real cause of the China threat, the threat posed by China, is Marxist-Leninist ideology in China. And uh, this is a, a fatal error of the Biden administration's foreign policy. They've got to recognize that it's a communist threat.
3: Coming up, the battle for the U.S. Senate turns once again to Georgia.
6: There's a lot of things that we can do in a 50-50 Senate to slow down, in some cases stop uh, the most extreme element of the Biden agenda.
9: When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, We've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu SPP. That's pepperdine.edu SPP.
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. On Tuesday this week, the Senate passed by a 61 to 36 vote, the Respect for Marriage Act. Twelve Republicans voted in favor of the bill. I applaud what they did. Many others, including Utah Republican Mike Lee, voted against the measure. Most of the Salem hosts are against it as well. The concern of the opponents was religious liberty. Mike Lee explained to my colleague, Charlie Kirk. Senator, you're very fired up about a
2: specific measure and a measure within that law that is not getting enough media attention. The floor is yours. Walk our audience through it. The Respect for Marriage Act is something that recognizes same-sex
5: marriage under federal law and requires states uh, to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states as long as those states happen to recognize it. The issue that we face with this is that that legislation passing through a combination of the the overlapping impact of various federal statutes and Supreme Court precedents, produce a situation in which religious nonprofits could have their tax-exempt status revoked by the federal government based on their religious beliefs about same-sex marriage. So I wrote an amendment to deal with this. This is a a legitimate issue, an, an issue that's been of concern ever since the Supreme Court decided Obergefell versus Hodges uh, about seven years ago. And uh, in fact, it was acknowledged, uh, Justice Alito, my former boss, raised it with Solicitor General Donald Borelli at oral argument. He acknowledged it was going to be an issue. And uh, so as long as we're codifying it, it, it makes sense mm. to put in place a, an amendment Affirmatively prohibit the government from taking any yeah. adverse action against an individual or group based on that religious belief. So so, Senator, so it should be easy to pass.
2: Yeah, Senator, I'm so glad you're bringing attention to this because I actually had a conversation with a family member about this over the weekend where I was under the impression based on media reports because of this LGBTQ bill that is passing through the Senate, which, by the way, no Republican should be voting for this, by the way, period. End of story that there was some sort of bipartisan working committee. What you are trying to warn people is that not so fast, that bipartisan whatever committee has actually not solved the problem that very well could result in the Internal Revenue Service. I hope everyone in the audience understands this. This could empower the Internal Revenue Service to revoke tax-exempt status from any nonprofit that believes that marriage is between one man and one woman, a school, a hospital, a church, a parachurch ministry, is that correct, Senator?
5: Yes, all of those things are possible. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we should never allow in this country. People shouldn't be threatened uh, with their tax-exempt status if they run a religious nonprofit for sticking to a, a sincere religious belief about what marriage consists of. That's not the government's role. And the fact that they're insisting on passing this bill without that amendment in it, should concern us all. Now, my amendment would more or less render it harmless in that respect. It it would eliminate that risk. It's interesting, though, that we've, we've got 12 Republicans who have so far been joining up with Democrats. Every Democrat, all 50 Democrats in the Senate are voting for this, and then we've got 12 Republicans who have been with them. They're willing to vote for the bill regardless of whether it's in there. Uh, The Democrats are never going to support it, and the amendment will fail. But this is kind of a a do-or-die moment. It's the make-or-break moment for religious freedom, and it matters. Meanwhile, the bill's sponsors are claiming that they've got language that they've recently added to the bill that takes care of the problem. only problem is this. It doesn't. It appears to address the issue. But in fact, all it says is that the bill can't be construed Itself to revoke or deny uh, a, a particular status under federal law. That's not really the concern anyway. The concern isn't that the bill itself does it, it's the bill itself leaves intact and, if anything, accelerates a pre existing risk. And so what they've written is, is deliberately deceitful, I think. It, it's deliberately written in such a way as to convince people to lull them into a false sense of security uh that this problem has been dealt with it hasn't that's why the lee amendment needs to
2: pass yeah this is so important so i'm going to name the senators that have voted for the gay marriage bill i don't even like calling it the gay marriage bill whatever they call it the respect for marriage act i think that's an insult to marriage but that's my own personal belief this is the the 12 people okay susan collins from maine lisa murkowski of alaska rob portman of ohio mitt romney of utah tom tillis of north carolina Roy Blunt of Missouri, Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Todd Young of Indiana. Now, Cynthia Lummis is a very, she's a liberty-loving person. I'm going to text her, Senator, after this, and I would imagine she's persuadable. Some of these other people, I think, are a lost cause. But let me make sure I understand this, Senator. If even just a couple of these Republicans are, if they, if they, go along with the lee amendment would that fix this essentially because this is such a big issue senator that if we just say oh the election's over this could be the end of religious liberty anyone watching your church could be attacked by the irs because you believe in biblical marriage because of the consequence of this bill senator so what is the action item for our audience right now that are fired up to hear about this happening in the senate and, and to be clear under the bill they can't go after your church itself but a religious nonprofit. yes they could.
5: They can't compel your church to perform a same-sex marriage, but this is bad. It's still punishing people. So here's the action item. Uh, Many of these people, many of the 12 Republicans you mentioned, may well end up voting for my amendment, but that isn't enough. If they believe in the amendment and they see the need for it, such that they're willing to openly say that they support it, then they should refuse to vote for the bill at the end of the process if my amendment is not adopted. That's how we know whether they're sincere in their support for the amendment. Because otherwise they're saying, yeah, we supported it, but it wasn't that important to us. The bill was fine just the way it's written, and it's not.
3: As we watch the Senate in this lame duck session, I need to remind you, particularly you Georgians or people who know people in Georgia, that the composition of the Senate in the next Congress is not yet decided. Right now in the Senate of the 118th Congress, 50 Democrats, 49 Republicans, and one seat that is yet to be decided. This last seat matters a lot. It's Herschel Walker's seat, I think. I turn to Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Everybody is going to help out Herschel, but people need to know they got to vote next Tuesday. How important is a 50-50 Senate as opposed to a Democrat majority of 51-49, Tom Cotton?
6: Vitally important, Q. Uh, There's a lot of things that we can do in a 50-50 Senate. To slow down, and in some cases, stop uh, the most extreme elements of the Biden agenda, along with the House majority. Stop the most extreme nominees. You know, we've done that in a few cases, Hugh, where one Democratic senator balked either publicly or privately. It's much harder to stop those radical left wingers if it takes two Democratic senators bucking their own president. But even more important to you than control of the United States Senate is who will represent the people of Georgia for the next six years. This is about being Georgia's voice and Herschel Walker will be a voice for sanity, for stable prices and a strong growing economy, for tough on crime policies, for a secure border and a proud, strong America in the world. We know what Raphael Warnock will do. He has been a radical, radical left wing ideologue and a rubber stamp for Joe Biden's agenda. So for the people of Georgia, this could not be a more pressing decision
3: coming up. Mike Garcia wins for a second time in the Blue District in California.
10: So we have to learn how to play by those rules and and adopt them. And as candidates, try to impart some sort of motivation level in the voters to vote early.
3: When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us.
2: Hey, everybody. Charlie Kirk here. We've been working very hard on an amazing new docuseries called Border Battle. It chronicles the horrifying conditions on America's southern border. What you are going to see in border battle will blow your mind. It's amazing. First-hand interviews, incredible commentary, straight up on the front lines. We've worked very hard on this from Turning Point USA, and we are exposing the border crisis. Available exclusively on SalemNow.com. Produced by Turning Point USA. Available at SalemNow.com.
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. There are a number of lessons to learn from the 2022 midterm. Lesson number one, the quality of candidates matters a lot. Lesson number two, winning candidates need to play effectively by the new rules as those rules have changed, particularly over the last two cycles. Mike Garcia did well on both counts. He's a solid conservative candidate and he played by the new rules. Garcia won re-election this year in a district that is stacked against him. He will represent California's 27th district in Santa Clarita, northeast of Los Angeles. He joined Grant Stinchfield
11: on the new Stinchfield podcast. You know, you sent me this list of of Republicans who won in Democrat districts. Um, You're at the top. Joe Biden was a plus 12 Democrat district in 2020. And you are going to be now over six points probably by the time it's done Republican district. That's amazing in and of itself.
10: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's the end result of really a, a two year, uh, what I call a capture plan, right? I, at Raytheon. I was a, a, an executive at Raytheon for eleven years. My my role was to win large uh, programs, uh, large uh, awards, and and to compete on the global stage. With multiple companies. Um, and so what we referenced was a capture plan, and it was a holistic look on how to win new business, and it was, in this case, applied directly to this campaign. Uh, we've been running, obviously, since 2019 uh, in a very blue district, uh, like you said, Biden, plus uh, close to 13 points. And so the, the, the key is that we, we ran for literally two years. We didn't wait till the last two months before the election. Uh, it was a persistent uh, presence in the district uh, as a challenger, but also as an incumbent in this last term. Uh, And and that's the secret. I think people have got to realize that that these endeavors are not, you know, six weeks, nine weeks, not even nine months. It's literally a two-year full-time gig. And when you look at it through that paradigm and you look at it as a capture plan with all the ingredients, and we'll talk about some of that, I'm sure, today, but um, that's coming at it from the right paradigm.
11: So, Congressman, I've said that we need a paradigm shift from a Republican standpoint in how we look at, at elections. We talk about turning out the vote. But in states like Arizona and Pennsylvania and California, we have to start looking at turning out the ballots, which is different from turning out the vote.
10: That's right. Yeah. Traditionally, you know, most conservatives will vote uh, on Election Day. Right. That's just that's just what they do. They, they see it as part of the, 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 the pomp and circumstance of an election to show up in person, uh, which is fine. We still see a lot of that. But uh, what, what I've been pushing within our campaign with with our volunteers, when we go canvassing, when we make phone calls, you know, and in California, it's a land of not quite right when it comes to election laws. Right, we got a 30-day window uh, for vote by mail. Everyone gets a, a vote by mail universally, whether they ask for it or not. Uh, there's no voter ID, and then there's about a 10 to 12-day uh, window to vote in person. And what what we push for is as one of our strategies was try to try to get as much support as early as we can, uh, so that we do show a level of strength that that sort of. Uh, takes the appetite away from folks like Nancy Pelosi. And it's okay to be down in a blue district, especially uh, as a Republican in, this, in those early weeks. But if you're within a certain percentage and with your, within a certain margin of ballots, uh, you're showing a level of strength, which, which frankly deters them from investing. And that, that's literally what happened in our race, right? We, uh, we did convince enough conservatives and enough uh, middle, third, uh, independent, no party preference folks to, to show up early. Uh, And after those early returns started coming in and after some of the polling data came in, uh, Nancy Pelosi saw the data and decided to not fund my opponent to the, you know, the tune of she she basically put in about $20 million against me in 2020. uh, And this year it was, uh, you know, less than less than 500 K all said and done. So so that early strength does matter. It's counterintuitive to us as conservatives. We don't necessarily trust the vote by mail. Uh, but in California, you can track your ballot. You can see when it's been accepted. You can see when it's been counted. And so there is still uh, uh, some, some ambiguity, some, you know, uh, distrust there embedded in that whole process. But you do get a warm fuzzy that at least your ballot was counted.
11: Uh, all right. So, uh, so you actively pushed for your supporters to mail their ballot in.
10: Correct. And eyes wide open that we're going to lose that war, right? Um, we, we would We would go knock on someone's door, and I personally would be at – Someone's door, uh, you know, three weeks before Election Day saying, hey, I would appreciate it if you can go in person in a few days and vote in person on the first day. But the, the, to your point, it's a paradigm shift. And, and with all cultural shifts or paradigm shifts, uh, it takes a, a, a few years, a few iterations to convince folks. And it's water over rock kind of mentality. Uh, but look, these are the rules of the, of the game here, especially in California. It's not changing. It's going to be universal vote by mail. Um, uh, they just passed the laws to that effect. So we have to learn how to play by those rules and and adopt them. And as candidates, try to impart some sort of, uh, you know, uh, motivation level in the voters to to vote early.
3: You can get the Stinchfield podcast, as well as many other great podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. Coming up, COVID, the flu, RSV. It's a heavy season for respiratory viruses.
8: So we're paying the price of sheltering people uh, longer than they needed to be sheltered.
3: Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins from the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment.
9: Grounded in our distinctive Great Books curriculum, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy prepares students for exciting careers in politics who understand the relevance of America's founding principles to today's policy challenges. From our Southern California campus, we've sent over a 1,000 alumni across America and around the world. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. Find out more at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP.
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Have I reminded you yet that on Tuesday you've got to get out and vote for Herschel Walker if you live in Georgia? Here is your last reminder from me. As the nation enters the winter months, it's no surprise that we are seeing a rise in respiratory viruses. The opening line from a piece at Forbes reflects much of the coverage that we've seen. Quote, three viruses are leading to a rise in hospitalizations in children. COVID-19, flu, and RSV have combined to create a triple the facts are true, but our public health officials, already in sore need of restored credibility, have not done themselves any favors here. That's the argument of Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins. He was a guest of
1: Chris DeGaulle on AM 990, The Answer in Philadelphia. When you listen to certain health officials like Dr. Fauci, I, I don't know, I feel like sometimes I've, uh, you know, I hit my head and I woke up and I'm still where we were. Like, like the last three years have been a dream and we just keep living the same thing. Are we really... Seriously, entertaining. And it sounds like he is a conversation of keeping kids out of school again. He said that on Sunday.
8: Unfortunately, they still believe in zero covid policies. They truly believe in closures and business closures and school closures. They just believe the threshold for doing that changes a little bit. Now, he's factoring in the political will a little bit. But remember, in some of the northern states in the United States, they really think they saved thousands of lives in Michigan for closing parks and schools. The governor there, Whitmer, said, um, we saved thousands of lives, it was a tough decision. If you look at Michigan versus Sweden, for example, identical population, there's no more perfect comparison of COVID policies. Sweden was wide open, Michigan was closing parks and schools. Michigan has double the deaths of Sweden. So unfortunately, the narrative that they saved lives from these restrictions is still you know, living large in, in the minds of many people. And depending on what news you listen to, people actually still believe three to 400 Americans are dying of COVID right now every day. Those, those numbers are far exaggerated because of the number of people who test positive when they die from other illnesses and it gets logged as a COVID death. So that helps fuel this sense of, We're in a state of emergency. The reality is 95% of the people in the hospital with a respiratory infection right now have influenza or RSV, not COVID.
1: Gordon Chang said about China and the uprising we're seeing right now where they're practicing a zero COVID lockdown and the Chinese people are rising up and saying, no, I asked Gordon, I said, do they really earnestly believe that they can control this virus, or is this just human control? And he said, you know, that, that kind of the Maoist way of thinking is that, yes, nature is something that he, he believes that sincerely he can control. <laughs> you can control the spread of a virus. And I would just ask you, from a medical point of view, is there such a thing?
8: Well, you can postpone the spread of COVID a little bit, by going into very harsh lockdowns. And some people who were high risk chose to go that route the first year of the pandemic in the US until they could get the vaccine. But the problem is that these zero COVID policies that are cruel and often a human rights violation are ignoring the fact that there's a 10,000 fold difference in the risk to an older individual with a risk factor versus a young healthy person. So unfortunately, 100 million healthy Chinese kids are going to have to undergo some of the most cruel treatment of children you can envision for a virus that essentially poses no risk to them whatsoever beyond the common cold. That's what's so hard to watch about China.
1: Two weeks ago, I'm watching football and a local news anchor does a you know, interrupts football and says, hey, coming up tonight at 10, how to keep your children safe from the tridemic. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, "What the hell does tridemic mean?" And I'm looking around; I've never heard this. And by the middle of the the next week, Rochelle Walensky's on CNN talking about the tridemic. I, they, it's like they make up these words and they just speak them into existence. It, what what is, what is that even supposed to mean, tridemic, doctor? I think some of these public
8: <clears throat> public health officials got a taste of what it's like to be king, and they don't want to hand the keys back over. We do not have a tridemic, and if you look at the number of COVID cases, it is dwindled by the number of cases of RSV and influenza. So what we have is a bad flu season and a bad RSV season and a very low background rate of COVID if we look at the real numbers. Of course, government won't tell us what the real COVID death tally is because better to lump it all together with the incidental positive deaths and the true positive deaths.
1: Because again, uh, flu, and I'm sorry to interrupt, flu has always killed vulnerable elderly people, sadly. Lots of people die from harsh flu seasons. That's always been true since I was paying attention to news, doctor.
8: You know, your body really doesn't care if the virus is an RSV strain, an influenza strain, or the few COVID strains that circulate currently. It's just getting stress from a respiratory virus. And we have a respiratory virus season every year. And uh, we have been oddly complacent about the number of flu deaths each year. But what we have now is a really bad respiratory viral season from influenza and flu because people had immunity sheltering. Because of the restrictions and because of the lockdowns, people's immune systems were not exposed to that low level of viral exposure. So, We got hit hard and this was unanticipated by many public health officials. So we're paying the price of sheltering people uh, longer than they needed to be sheltered.
1: It's just such a weird time when you start to feel sick. Nobody wants to feel sick. There's this weird reaction now. Oh, what if it's something terrible? And say, well, maybe it's just you're sick because it used to be we just got sick. Well, I hear people say, I'm sick. I'm not feeling
8: well, but I tested negative for COVID. Thank God it's not COVID. Well, what's the matter? It's got the same infection fatality rate. (laughs) I mean, these infections are part of a normal viral season, which means we don't blow them off. We just mean you don't cough and sneeze and slobber on somebody next to you. You don't show up to work when you're sick. Fauci, you know, didn't fund any research on a clinical COVID that was meaningful and timely. When the pandemic hit, he moved into a TV studio and just opined every single day. Rather than do his job of funding the research to tell us it was airborne and not spread from surfaces. Instead, he told people for months to wash your hands like crazy. They didn't do research on natural immunity, vaccine complications, on Uh, Vitamin D, that research came out a few weeks ago that vitamin D reduces COVID mortality. Why did we get it two and a half years into this? Why couldn't Fauci commission that research and do it rapidly? That was the ultimate failure, in my opinion, of Dr. Fauci. Coming up, uprisings in Iran.
12: Enough is enough. We cannot stand for this anymore. We need to rise up.
3: In the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us.
12: Hi, I'm Georgine Rice. This week in the Christian Outlook, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The U.S. Senate votes to pass the so-called Respect for Marriage Act.
1: What they're trying to do here, beyond what they say publicly, is that this is really an attempt to target people of faith.
12: We'll talk about why it matters.
11: This is one of those moments that's going to shape religious liberty for generations
12: including analysis from albert moeller
1: the logic behind this kind of effort and you see it in these democratic statements the logic behind it simply means there is basically a forfeiting of any claim to marriage as any kind of objective reality it just means whatever some legislature some culture may say it means this for now we'll see about later
12: be sure to join us and visit our website at christianoutlook.com
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. On Tuesday this week at the World Cup in Qatar, USA beat Iran 1-0 to advance to this weekend's contest against Netherlands. But as is often the case in international sport, the story behind the stories is bigger bigger than what happened on the field of play. That was certainly the case of Iran's team and in Iran. In Iran, the death of Masha Amini over a month ago in police custody spurred widespread protests that continue. The greatest set of protests since the Green Movement in 2009, perhaps since the 1979 revolution that brought the Mullahs to power. Joe Piscopo turned to activist Brigitte Gabriel. On AM 970, The Answer in New York City. I felt sorry for the soccer players going to the World Cup, watching them. They just didn't sing the
8: national anthem. Around. Then all of a sudden, they got their families were threatened, and now they lost to the Americans. The folks running around, they will punish these people and their families, correct?
12: Oh, they absolutely will punish them. Look, uh, the uh, the Iranian regime, the malacracy, they have no value for humans. They have no values for those who stand up against them. And the athletes, as far as the Iranian government is concerned, they have shamed Iran on the world stage. And they need to be punished. I feel truly sorry for them. I feel bad for them. You know when they're going to get back to Iran. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be arrested. Uh, Some of them may be killed. And you know what? What? The world is not going to know about it because the world doesn't even remember their names. You know, now they are in the news. Now we are talking about Iran and the World Cup. One month from now, the world is going to forget about them, and these people's lives have been changed forever. After all, they shamed Iran on the world stage, and they lost to the United States. You know, add this to the fact that they refused yeah. to sing the national anthem, and, you know, that's, that's what we're dealing with with Iran. These protests in Iran, which were sparked by the September 16 death of the 22-year-old oh. uh, girl oh. uh, Massa Amini, after her detention uh, by yeah. the country's morality police, have now grown Joe into one of the largest sustained challenges to the nation's theocracy since the chaotic months after its 1979 Islamic Revolution. So far, 451 people have been killed; 64 of them are children. 18,000 people arrested. I mean, what's happening in? Iran right now is unprecedented since, I mean, we have not seen anything like this since 1979. It's a true challenge to the democracy and the world is watching and you know what, the the, the only one good thing about social media is actually it's bringing these demonstrations out whether in Iran, whether in China where the people are saying enough is enough, we cannot stand for this anymore, we need to rise up. I mean, who would have thought we're going to have the American media and American companies on the side of the Communist Party of China instead of on the side of the people fighting on the streets in China. And our media is not calling, is not screaming for our leaders to be held accountable and do something to stand up for freedom, for individual freedom around the world.
3: Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with you, Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com and sign up for a daily dose of the best in talk radio. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Schubin, producers David Puchon, Michael Cook, Tim Gantner, Jacob Ordunia, Adam Ramsey, and of course, Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.